Okay, so presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. my wife and I am your co-host and my husband uh, oh yeah 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 <laughs> Austin <laughs> all right so quick disclaimer before we get started I want to just put it out there in case any of you are new here I am fighting kind of a cold and I just want to put it out there because I don't typically sound very congested and shaky but I am going to probably for this episode um, but I really wanted to put this episode out there because what's happening with this case is happening like this week. And so I just wanted to get ahead of it. Bear with me. Thank you for sticking around. And if you're not a big podcast listener, some people will literally comment and say, I don't like her voice. Yeah. If she's nasally. Yeah. It hasn't happened to us yet, but I've seen it happen to other people where they get these awful comments like, oh, vocal fry. And she's so nasally. I can't even stand it. So anyway, I just want to put it out there. I don't normally sound like this, but today I do. So. All right, you ready? Rock on. Okay. Today we are talking about the disappearance of Sherry Papini. So Sherry Grafe and Keith Papini were seventh grade sweethearts, and it's been said that Keith was actually Sherry's first kiss. In middle school, they shared notes back and forth, like a lot of middle school sweethearts do, and Keith actually saved almost every note that she wrote him. Hmm. So sweet. But as they got older, they grew apart and went their separate ways, dating other people. And Sherry eventually married a military man in 2006, but they eventually split up and Sherry reconnected with Keith. And then Keith and Sherry got married in 2009 and they made a beautiful couple. In their wedding photos, Sherry looked like this amazing, like this princess. She wore this beautiful dress. She had a tiara with her veil. I mean, she literally looked like a Disney princess. And many people thought of them as that, like this Disney couple, that she embodied the look of a princess and she found her handsome Prince Charming and they just were living this dream together. And not only did they look the part, but they were very devoted to each other. They um, had this like picture-perfect life, it seemed like. They moved to Redding, California, and they actually bought the house that Keith grew up in, and it was there that they decided to raise a family of their own. So Sherry and Keith had two children, um, and at the time of this story, they had a four-year-old son named Tyler and a two-year-old daughter named Violet. Sherry was a super devoted mom. She planned their clothes every day, their meals every day. I mean, like you call me a super mom sometimes, Austin, and a lot of people call called her a super mom, literally super mom. I think moms in general just have a, a human nature. A superhuman uh, nature. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, she definitely embodied um, what it what it meant to be a super mom. Um, she made their meals homemade a lot. She made these beautiful desserts. It was said by one of her sisters that like, if she made a pie, she didn't just make a pie. Like she made it with this beautiful crust and like a little, you know, decoration in the middle. I mean, it was just like extreme, right? 
She kept a very nice home. And pictures of them together, which I, I showed you a picture, Austin, mm-hmm. of their family. And if you want to see their family, you can go on our um, Instagram page, mama.mystery, and I'll post some pictures on there of the family. They're super cute. Kids so are cute. cute. So cute. Yeah. So on November 2nd of 2016, Keith and Sherry are getting ready for the day. Before Sherry leaves with the kids to take them to daycare, she gives Keith a kiss goodbye. At 10.37 later that morning, Sherry sends Keith a text asking if he's going to be home for lunch, but he doesn't see the text until later that afternoon, and he replies that he isn't going to be home for lunch. And then Keith at the time was working as an audio video specialist at Best Buy. When he gets home later that evening, he walks into the house. It's like 5 p.m. And, you know, every night when he would come home from, from work, he would be greeted by his kids. They would, they would be so excited to see him. They'd do like, you know, they'd run up and greet their daddy. So he was expecting to be ambushed by them in their typical fashion, but the house was completely quiet. So he checks their bedrooms and the yard, but they aren't there. So at first he just assumes that maybe Sherry took them on a walk. So he opens the Find My iPhone app to search for Sherry's location, and it shows that she's down by their mailbox. But their mailbox is one of those, like, really big metal multi-unit mailboxes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Like an apartment all- complex mailbox. Yeah. It's just like that, except, like, these houses, they're just so far spread apart. Um, but, yeah, that's what they use for their mailbox. And it's about a mile from their home. So Keith goes down to the mailbox to meet up with them, but when he gets there, they are nowhere to be seen. So confused, he calls the kids' daycare to ask what time Sherry picked them up that day. And to his surprise, his kids are still there because Sherry actually hadn't picked them up yet, which was really unusual because at this point, it's past 5. Usually she picks them up around like 4.30, 4.45, according to him. Has he called her? Did I miss that part? So I don't know for sure if he called her or not. I'm assuming that he did, but I, I have seen people question that, and I don't know for sure if he tried calling her. Okay. But weird. this is the moment that he realizes, I'm assuming that he did try to call her, because I feel like that would just be your first instinct, and she didn't answer. That's and the most that's natural why. thing, yeah. Yeah, and that maybe that's why he used the Find My iPhone app. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this is the moment he realizes something is really wrong. So at this point, Keith gets out of the car and he's trying to find her phone because the Find My iPhone app is still showing that it's nearby. So he starts pinging her phone and sure enough, he finds it right there on the ground. And her headphones are, it looks like it's just been placed on the ground. And she was wearing those Apple headphones that still have the wire. And they're all tangled up and some of her blonde hair was tangled in the headphone wires. So he believes at that point that she probably went out for a run earlier that day because she had actually been training for a Thanksgiving Day race. Um, And she had also recently had breast implant surgery, breast augmentation surgery. And this was like right when she started feeling well enough to start running again. And she was, so this is like her first race after her surgery and she was training for it. So he assumed that she must have been out on a run. But something must have happened on that run, and he recalls feeling in that moment that she must have been taken. He just knew. So he calls 911, and of course, I'm going to play you that call. 911, what is your uh, emergency? CHP transfer. Keith is on the line. Hello, can I help you? Hello. Yeah, um, so uh, I just got home from work, and uh, my wife wasn't there, which is unusual, and my kids should have been there by now from like daycare. So I was like, oh, maybe she went on a walk. 
Um, I couldn't find her, so I called the, the daycare to see what time she picked up the kids. The kids were never picked up, so I got freaked out. So I hit like the Find My iPhone app thing, and it said that her it showed her phone like at our end of our driveway. We don't have really good service. Okay. Um, not the end of our driveway, but the end of our street. So I just drove down there, and I saw her phone with her headphones because she started running again. And it's her, I found her phone, and it's got like hair ripped out of it, like in the headphones. So I'm like totally freaking out, thinking like somebody okay, like what's just grabbed her. Okay, what's your address? Redding. What, okay, what's your last name? Yes. Papini, P-A-P-I-N-I. And your first name? Uh, Keith. K-E-I-T-H? Uh, yes. Okay. Did you go pick up your children? No, I'm going to call my mom and have her do it. Okay. okay. What's your wife's I'm name? I'm going to, like, knock on every door. Uh, Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I. And same last name? Yes. She white female? Yes. What's her date of birth? Uh, it is uh, June 11, 1982. Is her vehicle there? Does she not have a vehicle? She has a vehicle that's at the house. Okay, the vehicle yeah, is at the house? She's running. How? Okay. Yes, I'm how? in it right now driving, and I took a picture of her phone on the ground before I picked it up. Okay, how tall is she? 5'3", 5'4". How much does she weigh? 100 pounds. Eye color? Uh, like a bluish blue. Okay, hair color? Blonde. Do you know what she was wearing? Is there no something idea. she always wears? I'm assuming she went running, so okay, probably there's... wearing athletic type clothes. Okay, there's not an outfit she always wears or anything like that. Does she run with a dog or by herself? By herself. Okay. What time were the kids? We just looking? started running again, and we live in a... When's the last time you heard from her? Uh, she sent me a text asking me if I was coming home for lunch. Uh, what time was that? Um, uh, well, give me one second. She sent me a text at 10.47 asking me if I was coming home from lunch from work. And I said, sorry, long day. And that was the last. Never spoke to her on the phone, never any other contact. Okay, and what time are the kids supposed to be picked up? Way before 5.30. She usually goes to like 4.45. Okay. 4.30, Okay, are you headed back to the house, or where are you at right now? I'm at the end of the driveway where uh, I'm at the Old Oregon Trail and Sunrise where they meet because that's right where I found her phone on the ground. You're telling me that something happened to her is the way I'm looking at it. There's like then there was hair like in the headphones, like it got ripped off of like the ground. Yeah, no, I und- I understand, I understand. Okay, I'm sorry. I know it's you're okay. trying to keep me calm, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of vehicle are you in? I'm in a black Kia Optima. Oh, my God. Okay. And I live, I mean, we live down kind of a sketchy street, so I yeah. definitely, I don't know if I'm allowed to knock on everybody's door, but I will if I'm allowed to do that. Well, let's just have the officers contact you so they can start, you know, processing everything, figure out what's going on, okay? And I understand you're freaking out a little bit. We wanna we wanna make sure we get your kids. 
make sure they're okay. Obviously. Yeah, I'm going to call my mom start. and have her. Yeah, they better start getting okay. your phone number. Yes. Do you want me to wait right here for somebody? If, if you want to head back to your residence so they can contact you there, and in case she does return. Okay. Okay. We'll have them contact okay. you at your residence. Call us back if anything changes, all right? All right, so they're going to call the number you just took down the 355? They'll probably call you when they're on their way, and they're going to come out in person. Okay. Okay. All right, Austin, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm always skeptical, and like I like predicting what I think it is. Okay. And my initial reaction is, I think he sounds very, again, like the last case, I think that he sounds very much like what he thinks he's supposed to sound like in a situation like this. And like, I don't know, I just, I think, I like, I always put myself in the shoes, okay? Mm -hmm. If it was you and I couldn't find you and you didn't answer and kids weren't picked up and stuff, I wouldn't be on the phone going, <laughs> I, I told you, I mean, I found her, I found her headphones there. I know I said a few times, <laughs> um, uh, like just the chuckling and the, and, and, uh, well, I'll knock on everyone's door if I can. Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I just think, so I, I, I always feel bad whenever we get to the end and then I was the guy that guessed it was him and he didn't do it. But that's the thing. You don't I, know I don't know anything story. about these cases. You have no idea. So, so whatever you say really is a genuine reaction. And I wish, yeah. It's probably similar to other people's reactions as well, which is the quality I like yeah. in having you hear these stories for the first time. Yeah, it's just too too much like... I think a lot of these calls, like people try to temper what they're supposed to sound like and they try to like... Like they try to like temper their emotion. I don't know if I'm using the right word, but they try to like temper their emotion from coming across as too upset because they did it, but they want to be like genuine. So they, uh, I, 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 I'm freaking out over here. <laughs> it's like, but at the same time, sometimes it's kind of hard to decipher who's being genuine and who's not. Like, right. is this genuine or not? I mean, who's to say? No, like, I agree. And like everyone reacts kind of differently for sure. And you'd you be don't frantic. Know how you might react. Yeah. yeah no, a hundred percent. So I don't know, but my, my gut is. My gut is probably like a lot of people's and like police. Look what I said at the beginning of the last one. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the last episode, if you guys didn't listen to it, I said, take a look at your your spouse. You're looking at the person who's statistically most likely to kill you. <laughs> and it's because I saw it on a uh, – it was like a bridal speech. Yeah. And, and it was funny. Everybody laughed. And I was like, that's fitting for the show. But it's like true every time. So Yeah, it's very often true. So that's what I think. Okay. Take it away. So search efforts are immediately underway. Search warrants are being executed to determine when Sherry or where she might be or when she went missing, but nothing is coming up. They even contact one of her exes, and he admits he hasn't spoken to her in the last six years. Um, So then a call comes from a truck stop from a woman saying that she thinks she saw Sherry Papini there and that she looked scared. So detectives, of course investigate this a call into a into the police station yeah okay. yeah because at this point like people you know the word's getting out um and so people are kind of on the lookout but de- detectives investigate this and determine that it is not sherry so search and rescue teams they're combing the area they begin making checks on sex offenders registered in the area but still nothing is coming up so then on november 13th Sherry's family hires a private investigator to assist in the sh- in the search because at this point we're like 10 days in and <clears throat> nothing is coming up, right? She went missing on November 11th and it is now the 13th. So days start to go by. Keith is becoming more and more desperate. Um and police of course are looking at him. So they really start to 
turn their focus up on Keith and they ask him to undergo a polygraph test. And this test lasts for hours, but he passes with flying colors. And his alibi for that day is rock solid. So he ends up getting cleared as a person of interest at that point. I may not have been listening. Mm -hmm. Where is this located? Redding, California. Oh, California. I remember that. Never mind. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So two more weeks have passed, and there is still no sign of Sherry. It's like she just vanished. A GoFundMe account was created to help in the search efforts, and it raised almost $50,000. And then an anonymous donor offered a ransom reward for the safe return of Sherry. This is really unusual because I've never seen this happen before, but nobody knows who the donor is. Apparently, it was like just some well-meaning entrepreneur who didn't want to be known. But he offered, um, I think it was maybe like $10,000 or some sum of money. Um, He offered this in in return for Sherry's safe return. So he was like offering a ransom, even though a ransom wasn't being demanded. It was just kind of bizarre. A random person. Yeah. And nobody knows who the donor was, but this donor instructed whoever the kidnappers were to communicate with a guy named Cameron Gamble. And Cameron is an international kidnap and ransom consultant and a former senior air force airman who specializes now in training people how to escape captures. So he's literally got like a site where you can go get locked in some sort of like metal box and he teaches you like how to get out of it. That sounds like a nightmare. Hey, uh, not to veer off track too much real quick, but escape rooms, that's a freaking creepy concept, isn't it? (laughs) Like you got to be nuts. First of all, I'm going to have, I'm going to be packing. Okay. I'm going to have a heater in my pocket with a, with one in the pipe and that's freaking weird. I like puzzles, so I think I would. I think I would enjoy it, and I think I would excel at an. Someone room. you're gonna go pay to have somebody lock you into a room. It's, it's like a scary movie in the making. Yeah, but maybe it's good training in case you're ever in that situation. You never know. Yeah, you whatever. Never know. But anyway, back to Cameron Gamble. Keith, at this point, is so desperate to find his wife that he's willing to try anything. He's even reached out to psychics to see if he can figure out where his wife is. So. He agrees to let Cameron assist in bringing Sherry home or finding where she is. So on November 18th, Cameron posts a video offering a ransom to whoever kidnapped Sherry, but nothing surfaces. So on November 23rd, he posts another video saying that the ransom is no longer available, they lost their chance, and now he's offering cash to whoever will turn in whoever kidnapped Sherry. So he boasts that it's like this hefty amount. Anyone's going to have a hard time figuring out how to spend because it's just so much money. And that hopefully it will encourage anyone to come forward with anything they know about Sherry's disappearance. But still, nothing comes up. Two questions real quick. Sure. Okay, first of all, um, first of all, did you know this was happening when, like in 2016? No. Okay, I didn't know. So it, wasn't like, it was big, but it wasn't like national, like crazy big. It wasn't like, it wasn't as big as some of the other cases we've done. I'm sure it was okay. big in the moment, but I don't remember seeing anything about it. No. And then this whole ransom thing is super weird. Have you ever heard of anything like this? I have not. Okay, I think it's strange. We've never, we've done like 70 episodes and I've never heard you say this once. Never. Yeah, I've never seen this happen where somebody just offers They're playing a this ransom. big game. It's like... It's one thing to say they're offering a reward for the safe return of somebody, but they're offering a, a ransom, ransom for the kidnapper. Word. It's weird. Bizarre. But then, on the morning of Thanksgiving Day, there was a balloon release scheduled for later that day to offer 
just hope to Sherry and her family, and hopefully it would direct her home, right? Because at this point, they've like been posting yellow ribbons all over the place, and the plan was to release yellow balloons in her honor. So Thanksgiving morning, Keith is in his bathroom, he's getting ready for the day, and his phone rings from an unknown number. So his cell phone rings from an unknown number. He doesn't answer, and then the home phone rings. So he goes ahead and answers that, and in the background, he can hear Sherry screaming his name. What? And on the line... I just got the goosebumps. (laughs) Damn, that's crazy. So, just a side note. We've had lots of side notes, sorry. I know, but uh, I had a lot of people comment on last week's episode. You asked if there was any feedback, and I couldn't think of any on the moment, but it's the goosebumps. Every time you say, it's like people are starting to predict when you're going to say that you have the goosebumps (laughs) because you say it every episode. If you didn't get the damn goosebumps just then, come on, you're weird. Right. So um, anyway, Sherry is in the background. She's screaming his name. And on the line is a California highway patrol officer who's trying to calm Sherry and Keith down at that point. So Sherry's been found, and she is alive. Freaking Goosebump City. So Sherry was found. That's a sticker. Sorry. Okay. Goosebump Goosebump City. Okay. (laughs) The Goosebumps. So Sherry was found on the freeway, I-5 North, in Yolo County, which is about 150 miles south of Redding. And after she tried to wave down multiple motorists, nobody would stop for her at first. She assumed that maybe people thought she broke out of prison because she had a chain wrapped around her waist. So she tucked the chain into her shirt, trying to hide it. And finally, a woman was passing by, and this woman stops, but not to pick her up. It was rather to call 911 just to say that there's a woman on the side of the road who appears to need some help. Because at this point, it's like 4.30 in the morning, and this woman was on her way to some Thanksgiving, you know, festivities. But uh, 4.30 in the morning, so it's like pretty dark out. I mean, it's just a very odd time of night. Yeah. So police arrive, and at first, she kind of refuses to talk to them. She's like... I think she's just in shock. I don't know. But she just wants to call her husband. But what she does tell police when she gets picked up is that she was abducted and held at gunpoint by two masked Hispanic women and that she was just dropped off on the side of the road in the middle of the night but had no idea where she was or even what day it was or if it was morning or night. Like She had no concept of time because they kept a bag over her head for the whole time or... At least for the time that she was traveling, I should say. And so how long was she missing at this point? She was she went missing on November 2nd, and she showed She's back up miss- on the 24th, I think. It was a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three crap. weeks. And they kept a bag on her head the whole time? Well, I think only when she was traveling. Okay. I mean, we have more details, and I'll get into that in a second. But I know that when she was dropped off, she had a bag over her head, so she had no idea where oh, she dang. was, what day it was, what time it was, nothing. Okay, I'm not going to talk for a while. Bye. <laughs> so... When she was found, she had a chain around her waist. Her left arm was tied to the chain with a zip tie. Her right arm was tied to something in the car before she says that whoever was driving or in the passenger seat cut it and threw her out on the side of a rural road. She also had hose clamps affixed to her ankles that were apparently like a pain device. And her long blonde hair, like she had really long hair. It was like her signature look, right? It had been totally chopped off. She was covered in bruises, all in various stages of healing, indicating that she suffered from, like, repeated beatings over time. And the bridge of her nose was broken. She only weighed 87 pounds. 
So she lost like 15% of her body weight. So she was totally emaciated. She had a brand on her left shoulder. Like she had had a brand burned into her left shoulder. Holy shit. Something, it was something about a Bible passage or Exodus, but we don't know specifically which scripture, just something to do with Exodus. So Sherry is taken to the hospital and Keith races to greet her. And when he gets there, a police officer stops him before he enters the room to tell him to prepare himself because she doesn't look like she did when she was taken. And when Keith sees how his wife now looks, he barely recognizes her. He just goes to her, he puts his arms around her, and he could feel the bumps on her body, the scab of the burn through her clothing. See, now I feel like shit for what I said about his phone call. It's okay. But he feels the bumps, sees the bruises on her face, and sees that her signature blonde hair is poorly cut. I mean, can you, can you imagine just like that devastation? Oh. But listen, Austin, I think what you, the fact that that was your genuine reaction is so common. That is exactly why people do look at the spouse because a lot of times, you know, when it is the spouse, they are acting on their 911 calls. And so you do have to be super vigilant and aware of like how people are acting and if their responses are strange. Well, like you said, though, you don't know how people are going to react. Exactly. Yeah. So... So now Keith and Sherry are on this wild ride of emotions, right? Joy that Sherry is home alive, but scared that whoever took her is still out there. And there's still the question of why. Why was she taken? What happened during her captivity? Who did this and will they strike again? So at first, Sherry wouldn't meet with the FBI. She had this distrust to law enforcement because she said that her captors planned to sell her and that the buyer was a cop. They were telling her that the buyer was a cop. So she was very fearful of law enforcement, understandably so. And it wasn't until March 2nd of 2017, almost four months later, that she agreed to talk to them, but only with her husband present. Sherry also met with sketch artists who come up with a sketch of the two women that you'll be able to also find on our Mama Mystery Instagram page if you want to go Check those out. So authorities hold a press conference detailing the two suspected kidnappers, and they offer a $10,000 reward for any information about them. And tips started to roll in, but they really kind of led to nothing. On December 2nd, so I'm kind of backing up a little bit, but on December 2nd, shortly after Sherry was found, Keith went on ABC's 2020 to give an interview about what happened to Sherry, but Sherry does not join him for this interview. Um, but I watched this interview and you can, you can see how just upset, emotional Keith is. He's speaking for his wife. He's, he's so proud of his wife for how she handled what she went through, but he's very emotional. He's crying. It's, it's difficult to watch, but Sherry in the meantime does, however, tell the FBI eventually more details about what happened while she was in captivity. So she said that the morning she went missing, she texted her husband saying, and she was kind of embarrassed by this, but she said, quote, honey, would you please come home to have sex with your wife for lunch? End quote. Hell yeah. But, but when he didn't respond, she decided to go for a run. And on her run, she was listening to her and Keith's wedding song on repeat. And it was the song Everything by Michael Buble, because she said that the beat of that song keeps her running at a good pace. And that's when she was approached by a dark colored SUV. 
First, the SUV passed her, and then it stopped and backed up to Sherry. And she noticed that two Hispanic women were in the front seat, and one of the pass or the one in the passenger seat asked Sherry, "Can you help me?" So Sherry walks up to the SUV, and the woman opens the door, and Sherry sees that the woman is holding a revolver in her hand. And she told Sherry to put her phone down and that they don't want to kill her, they don't want to hurt her, but to get in the car. So Sherry, terrified, she takes out her headphones, pulls some of her hair out while she does it, like I think in an attempt to like leave some clues or something, mm-hmm. and then sets her phone and headphones on the ground. And when her phone was found, everything was playing on repeat by Michael Buble, that song. So Sherry said... The car smelled terrible. It smelled like sewage, and it made her feel really sick. She also said that one of the women put a bag over her head almost right away, and she thinks that they may have tased her because the next thing she remembered was that all of her clothes were gone and there was a huge lapse in time. She tried to describe where they took her but had a hard time coming up with details since she had a bag over her head and was asleep for a lot of the ride. But based on what she told investigators, they believed that she was held in a mountainous location. So meanwhile, theories are starting to pop up as to what the hell happened. So one of the theories at first was that maybe it was like a drug deal gone wrong. Um, It wasn't the best area. You can hear in the 911 call, Keith say something about how they live kind of like on a sketchy road. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, there was thought that maybe this was like a drug deal gone wrong. but that Like, a, like her buying drugs? Yeah, because some people said that Keith and Sherry like to smoke weed sometimes, which I don't know if I fully believe that, but, you know. It's marijuana. It's not like they were doing like. Yeah, exactly. That's what I have a hard time. shit together. Like a drug deal for weed? Like that doesn't really make sense. I mean, I didn't think that sort of thing happened, but. That also wouldn't explain why she was held captive for 22 days and then released without any kind of monetary demands being met. Um, so I don't know. That, that one I, I don't really believe. But theory number two was sex trafficking. So within three miles of their home, there were 25 sex offenders on the registry at the time. So some people thought that maybe she was abducted to be traded in a sex trafficking ring. But the the problem with that theory is that it wouldn't explain why she was starved, beaten, and then her hair was chopped off. Because usually sex traffickers want their victims to look presentable or attractive. And they drug them, right? Or and that. But not the opposite. Like they want their their victims to look good, right? Um and there was also no evidence or report of sexual assault. However, there was just that testimony that um, Sherry mentioned to investigators that the two women talked about plans to sell her to a cop and that, quote, the buyer was a cop, end quote. Like, that just kept being repeated, I guess. So Sherry told investigators more details about her time in captivity. She said she remembered waking up in a room with zip ties around her wrists and in sweatpants, a sweatshirt, and no socks. When she first noticed the zip ties on her wrist, she tried to do that, like, chop move that you see, um, that you see it's like kind of these viral videos of how to break out if you if your wrists are zip tied and you hold your hands up high and you just bring them down really hard on your legs to break the zip tie mm-hmm. but apparently that wouldn't work and so she was trying to chew through them and ended up cutting her lip she also said that her captors set a radio outside of her door that constantly played loud music to drown out any other noise and that actually kind of reminded me of a case um, i think we already covered the it. shed 
shed. Just got the goosebumps. The the shed. The the remember the episode where the dude where that guy put that chick in the shed for like out on his oh. property. Oh yeah. That was nuts. That was nuts. That's not the one I'm thinking of though. I'm thinking of um, the case where Ariel Castro kidnapped three girls and held them captive and played a boombox super loud to drum. I remember that too. Music that yeah. they would make. But um, anyway, that's just what it reminded me of. So when Sherry was able to get the zip ties off her wrists, she tried to open the door of the room, but it was How'd she get them off? I think she ended up chewing through them. Oh, okay. Um, But anyway, she tried to open the door of the room, but it was locked with a deadbolt. So she stood on the bed to try to get a window, like the window opened, but it was covered with two wooden boards. And she tried to remove the boards, but the noise she made drew the attention of her kidnappers who barged into her room and knocked her unconscious. And she said that her punishment for trying to escape through the window was the branding that was left on her shoulder. And ever since that escape attempt, they kept her chained to a pole in the closet in the bedroom. So she said the chain was around her waist and there was a cable that was tethered to the chain and then attached to a pole that was within the closet. Holy shit. This is like, this would be the scariest thing of your entire life. Mm-hmm. And it just goes on for three weeks. Like, what? Yeah. So she could reach the bed, but not the door or the window. And she tried to slide it off her hips at one point, so they tightened it really tight. She also told investigators how they put a bucket in the room for her to use when she needed to go to the bathroom. And she mentioned telling them, you know, if you line it with a bag and put kitty litter in it, maybe it will make your job a little bit easier. And maybe this is just, like, the petty side of me, but if I was in that position, I would pull a monkey move and just, like, throw my shit and smear it all over the walls. Like, I'm not trying to make my kidnapper's job any easier, but at the same time, too, sometimes you hear about victims of kidnapping trying to appease or, you know, work with their kidnapper in hopes that it'll help, you know, raise empathy in them so they'll let you go. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. To each their own. But... Sherry described to them what this closet looked like in her room. And she said there were two doors that opened outward, two shelves, and a really weird metal pole that looked like a large screw that went through both shelves. And that's what the cable was attached to. And she really liked the closet because it was warm and it made the least noise. So she also described in detail what happened when she was branded. She said that the women brought a table into her room while she was on the bed and she described the table as being heavy because it was it made a loud sound when they put it on the ground. It was short to the ground, and it had a marble design, but the marble design was peeling, so it was obviously fake, like a marble laminate. So she said the women cut her shirt and forced Sherry face down on the table, which she said really hurt because she had those recent breast implants. And she tried to stay quiet as the object that they used to brand her was making like a popping noise and it was sizzling against her skin and she could smell it. And Jesus, she feared that if she resisted, they would beat her. So she just did her best to just cooperate. The day that she was released, Sherry said that she was sitting on her bed when she heard a gunshot and got really scared, so scared that she peed herself. Then she heard the sound of keys being grabbed off of a table And then the loud music being turned on outside her door. And then she eventually fell asleep because nothing else happened after a while. But then she woke up to being hit in the face and one of the women instructing her to put her clothes back on. So she did. And the woman put something over her head and unlocked the cable. 
she was put in that same that same car that smelled like sewage, except now she said it smelled like sewage and dirt. And as the car drove, she tried to count the songs to kind of gauge the time passing by, but ultimately fell asleep again. And then she felt the car come to a stop and thought, this is it. This is where they're either taking me to die or be sold off, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how terrifying that moment would be. But her captors told her to get out. She heard three clipping sounds, like something being cut, and then fell out of the car. And the car drove off, like it sped off. And by the time she was able to get up and take the bag off her head, the car was too far away to make out any license plate or like better details about the vehicle. So when Sherry was in the hospital after being found, her clothing was collected and DNA evidence was gathered that belonged to both a male and a female. Neither of those profiles belonged to Sherry or Keith, though. So investigators ran the profiles through CODIS, but it provided no hits. So they were kind of at a standstill at that point in regards to the DNA. But the fact that male DNA was found was a little bit of a question mark because she never mentioned any males or men in her stories, only two Hispanic women. However, the clothes, you know, they could have belonged to a man before they were put on Sherry. Or it's honestly hard telling how the DNA got there because there's, like, you can do touch transfer DNA. I mean, it's it's impossible to detect exactly how DNA gets somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so for years, this case kind of ran cold. And tips poured in and search warrants were executed, but never really turned up anything with substance. I'm sure her and her husband, like, lived in fear hardcore forever. Oh, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure you still do. Like, mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, it would be traumatizing. I don't know if this would even be suitable, but it's like the witness protection program. Like, Oh, yeah. Get me a new identity, a new social security number, set me up somewhere else. Like, Hide that's me. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it would be so scary. But then in October of 2017, detectives announced that Sherry, they, they found some information on Sherry's phone, right, that she had been texting a guy from Detroit, Michigan, And this is prior to when she went missing. And he was saved in her phone under a female's name. But Sherry claims that there was no romantic involvement with this person. And even though he had plans to travel to California for business, they determined he was not involved in Sherry's disappearance. And they never actually met up. They never connected. It was just something that came out. What did Keith think of that? You know, Sherry maintained that there was no romantic involvement, but I don't know what Keith's reaction was to it. It's, it hasn't been made public. But finally, there was a break in the case, and it came on March 19th of 2020, when investigators finally got a hit on that male DNA profile. So the California Department of Justice's Familial Search Committee voted to release to investigators the results of a DNA search using the sample that was found on Sherry's clothes. And the DNA came back as a familial match to a man that was in their database but had two living biological sons. One of those sons caught their attention because he was known to investigators as Sherry's ex-boyfriend. What? So in June of 2020, FBI agents go to his home and they collected some of his trash because once you discard your trash, it is up for grabs. Public, yeah. Yeah, you don't need a search warrant to collect it. And it's a way of kind of like collecting evidence but still staying under the radar and they don't know that you're onto them, right? So in his trash was this honest honey green tea bottle and investigators collected DNA from the mouth of that bottle and sure enough, it matched the male DNA that was found on Sherry when she was found. 
Also in July, investigators were scouring social media accounts belonging to Sherry, the ex-boyfriend, and his brother. They came across a picture that had a table in the boy's apartment, and it was eerily similar to the table that Sherry described when she was, that she was held down on when she was branded, right? So in August, investigators brought this guy in for questioning, and it turns out he was Sherry's ex-boyfriend, and he admitted to authorities that he helped Sherry run away. Apparently, Sherry and this ex-boyfriend knew each other since they were about 13 or 14 years old and had once even been engaged, and he told investigators that Sherry reached out to him out of the blue. They had not spoken in years because she had gotten married and had kids, but he estimated that sometime in 2015, he was cleaning his house and he came across a box of old photos and personal items that belonged to Sherry when they were dating, and he sent these things to Sherry's parents, and he just assumes that her parents must have told Sherry this, and maybe it sparked something in Sherry, maybe some nostalgia, and she felt so compelled to reach out to this ex-boyfriend. He said that Sherry claimed her husband was beating and raping her, and that she was trying to escape. She claimed to this ex that she had filed police reports, but that police weren't doing anything to help her, and these reports have never been found because she lied, obviously. But I would like to point out that this wouldn't be the first time Sherry has lied about somebody abusing her. In December of 2003, Sherry's mom, Loretta Grafe, alleged to authorities that Sherry had, quote, been harming herself and blaming the injuries on Loretta, her mom. And while we're on the topic of character, in 2000, her sister alleged that her back door had been kicked in and she believed it was Sherry that did it. And her own father alleged that Sherry burglarized his home that same year. Then again in 2003, he alleged that she stole money from his checking account. What the hell? So back to this ex-boyfriend. He told investigators that Sherry cut her own hair short while he was with him and hit and burned herself to cause her injuries. And oddly enough, in his apartment... He had a closet with shelves and a pole running through them, exactly like the one Sherry described. Talk about a curveball. He also described how she asked him to go to Hobby Lobby and buy a wood-burning tool that's used to make designs on wood. I've seen these before. Like, there's a whole aisle dedicated to wood crafts, and there's, like, wood-burning tools you can use to make designs on wood. He got her one and detailed how they both worked together to make this branding on her shoulder. And he was able to give details that were never released to the public. He only could have known some of these things if he was telling the truth. And he took investigators to Hobby Lobby, showed them the tool he used, and sure enough, the font of the tool did match the font that was on her shoulder. So she's just at at his place? She was just with her ex the whole time? The whole time. The whole three weeks. The whole three weeks. Oh, my gosh. See, now I feel even worse for saying that about Keith. Good Lord. If Keith ever listens to this, I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Holy shit. This is just curveball after curveball. Yeah. So he said that while Sherry was staying with him, she never left his apartment. He claims that he slept on the couch while she stayed in his room and that they never had sex. Oh, I'm sure of it. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Isn't that like an office joke or something? No, it's from the Brady Bunch. Okay. I hope somebody gets it. Sure, Jan. 
Anyway, that she boarded up the windows in his room, kept it pretty dark, that she was intentionally losing weight by eating fractions of what he was eating. Like, they would eat the same things, but she was just barely I felt so bad for her the whole time that she was so traumatized. Yeah. No, she's a fucking liar. Okay, keep going. So when asked what happened to her hair, he said, oh, yeah, she chopped that. That he literally came home from work one day and that she had just cut her hair off and must have thrown it in the trash. Why is he staying with her? Who, Keith? No, the... the oh, the guy? Yeah, the ex that's, the that's there. He's unnamed, by the way, so I'm just going to keep referring to him as the ex-boyfriend. But she just... She lied. She had him believing that her husband was beating and raping her and that she was trying to escape and needed some sort of savior. But you got to be a loon to sit there and know you're cutting your hair off. Help me brand myself. I'm bruising myself everywhere. I'm, I'm losing all this weight. Yeah, help me brand myself? Like, what? Yeah, you got to be a loon. Like, you got to be, like, he, dude's got to be crazy. It's really, it is bizarre because there is a, an affidavit out there, and I'm going to link that in our Patreon um, comments like in the in the script I always leave my sources at the bottom and so if you want to access the script it's on Patreon but if you want to google it you can google it too but it's 55 pages long I read the whole thing and it details you read his, the whole thing I read the whole thing <laughs> it's only 55 pages yeah. but um but his his interview with investigators is bizarre because he's like yeah, you know, she told me to, like, hit a puck into her leg. Like, just lightly, just hit a puck. Yeah, see, dude's weird. Like, And then he, he helps, and he, but he says, too, you know, I'm not, I don't get violent with girls. Like, I don't hit girls. But, like, she did ask me to, like, leave marks on her and stuff and, like, brand her back. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he helped her. He detailed how he helped her brand herself. And I was trying to think, like, how do you make that make sense? And I guess, you know, he said, you know, she was working through stuff. <laughs> No shit. Maybe she should be working through stuff in a therapist's office, not in your freaking apartment with your windows boarded shut for three weeks. Like, what? It makes no sense. But just before Thanksgiving, Sherry admitted to this ex-boyfriend that she missed her kids and asked him to take her back to Reading. And he said he drove seven hours and dropped her off on some county road off the freeway, which is where she was found. And this ex-boyfriend claims that it never occurred to him that he was helping Sherry commit a crime. He thought he was just helping a friend. And it wasn't until he started seeing news articles about Sherry being a missing person that he started worrying about what his involvement could mean for him. I told you he was nuts. But he still never came forward and told the truth until after his DNA was discovered on her clothes. He had every opportunity to come forward and say, hey, listen, this stuff that she's saying about, like, two Hispanic women, it's not true. She was with me. She was in my apartment. She asked me to come pick her up, and she asked me to bring her back. And, yeah, it was weird, but this is what happened, and I didn't know this is how it was going to turn out. Like, you had every opportunity to come and say that and stop these resources from being wasted while everyone's looking for this dark SUV with two Hispanic women in it. But you didn't, so... Anyway, on August 13th, Sherry and her husband, Keith, are brought in for an interview with the FBI and the Shasta County Sheriff's officials. They confront her with this DNA evidence and the phone records and the details that the ex-boyfriend knew that nobody else could have known. And they remind her that lying to federal agents is a crime. But she continued to deny that she had anything to do with her own disappearance. And then once her husband left the room, she kind of cracked a little bit. She said that... Her and her ex-boyfriend did talk a little bit before the abduction and that she also admitted 
that when she went out of town for work, she talked to other guys. She made a mistake that she talked to other men and shouldn't have. But she didn't fully break because she never gave in to the story that two Hispanic women abducted her. She stuck to that story. The GoFundMe was actually used to pay off some of her credit cards. So it was never actually used for resources to find Sherry. Maybe some of it was, but the majority was used to pay off her credit cards. She also applied for and received more than $30,000 from the California Victims Compensation Board. She used money for therapy sessions, ambulance services when she was found, and window blinds for her home. So as time went on... I need some blinds. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy. It's crazy. As time went on, people started coming out of the woodwork to detail Sherry's habitual lying. So according to the Sacramento Bee, one man who knew her when she was younger described her as, quote, an attention-hungry person who told stories to try to get people's attention. She lied about surfing and just all kinds of crazy lies, end quote. Another friend, Clayton Taylor, said that she claimed to have a heart condition, which her friends later learned was a lie, and, quote, anytime someone else, especially other women, were getting attention in a way that was taking away from her, she would have these episodes to kind of draw, draw everything back to her, end quote. So when she disappeared, he told his friends not to worry, saying, quote, I told everybody, I was like, dude, I bet you everything this girl is fine, bro, I promise you. End quote. That's what who said? Clayton Taylor, someone that knew her when they were oh younger. Oh, my gosh. So. I'll bet you anything this girl is fine. <laughs> I mean, like, a lot of people knew her as this Everybody was pathological pro- <laughs> liar, attention-seeking weirdo. Anybody who heard Clayton say that was thinking, bro, you're such an asshole, dude. She's, she suffered. Yeah. And then years later, he's, like, laughing his way to the bank, winning his bet. Yeah, right. <laughs> So as of, well, yesterday when I wrote this, but it was March 3rd of 2022 that Sherry Papini was arrested for charges of making false statements to federal agents and mail fraud in regards to that application for relief from the California Victims Compensation Board because she had to turn in an application answering all these questions. She made false statements on that. And then the payments were mailed to her and that's considered mail fraud. So in the affidavit, it details how Sherry and her ex-boyfriend were communicating since December of 2015, and that they ended up buying two prepaid phones to secretly communicate. And this was all corroborated by the records, um, the cell phone records, and and it showed that one of the phones was at Sherry's home and one was at the ex-boyfriend's home. They also gathered the cell phone pings, which showed the ex-boyfriend traveling to Reading on the day of Sherry's, quote, disappearance. And they were texting each other on the phones that morning. The ex-boyfriend's cousin also told investigators that he or she saw Sherry in the ex-boyfriend's apartment two times, both times unrestrained. The ex-boyfriend also admitted that he had a friend rent him a car so that he could drive Sherry, um, so that he could pick her up from Redding and then drive her back to Northern California, which was corroborated by car rental records and the odometer readings on the rental cars. It also details how that first husband was interviewed by investigators, the military man. Mm -hmm. So while Sherry told people that she traveled the world with him during his deployments, he says that was absolutely not true. They didn't even actually live together. 
Sherry told Keith, and Keith confirmed that Sherry said she only married the guy because she needed health insurance for a heart murmur. But the ex said that she needed insurance for complications related to regular egg donations. So she just can't even keep her lies straight. But he also stated that when he returned from his deployment, she told him she found someone else and wanted a divorce. He also said that Sherry told him he was abused by her family while she was growing up. Enough. Enough. Okay. (laughs) She's a dumbass. She's a liar. We're done. Yeah. Mama. No. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No. (laughs) I think I collectively speak for everyone. They're like, no. But... I am almost done because, I mean, it just, I could go on and on and on about all her lies, but I just, I won't. But some, not all of her family is sticking by her and they released a statement after she was arrested. And it says this, quote, we love Sherry and are appalled by the way in which law enforcement ambushed her this afternoon in a dramatic and unnecessary manner in front of our children. Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Her family's probably the same. You know, I just can't help but wonder, like, you want to you wanna chastise law enforcement for doing this in front of the kids, but what about what Sherry's put her kids through? She disappeared for three weeks, mm-hmm. not telling anyone what she was doing. She made people think she was abducted. There were times that Keith didn't know if his wife was alive or dead, where she was. And our kids are struggling. You did it right around Thanksgiving. Like, how sick are you in the head to do something like that? Like, I know people who who lie about stupid shit. Or I've actually known a few people to lie about having cancer, which is really weird. And something that we've talked about before. But this lie, the extent to which she went to fabricate this story, all for attention, is just like, girl, girl. You got some issues. You got some serious, serious issues. This goes beyond. So is she divorced? No. Keith is standing by his woman saying in a statement, quote, rumors, assumptions, lies, and hate have been both exhausting and disgusting. Those people should be ashamed of their malicious subhuman behavior. Keith said this? Keith said this. Come on, We are not going to allow those people to take away our spirit love or rejoice in our girl found alive and home where she belongs and so he's, he's that's 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 he's he's he is clouded his judgment is clouded by the punani i mean it better have like gold coming out of it i mean what is so good that you have got these men i i don't get it he's getting mad punani is he 24 <laughs> 7 oh god I don't get it. Men are stupid. <laughs> How much longer is up with this episode? We're done. <laughs> Mama. That's it. Mystery. <laughs> out. <laughs>